of uh, church houses. People, Christians were meeting in houses to worship together, to study the word together. And these were church houses made up of, of uh, Greek or, or Gentile Christians and then Jewish Christians. And, and so Paul is writing and the subject of the uh, lesson, the, the message today is trusting in the gospel, trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, there's nothing else to put our trust in when it comes to the matter of life, eternal life, and hope beyond death. And so as Paul is writing this, uh, I want you to uh, be turning over to chapter one. And uh, if you're following along in your study guide, you'll be somewhere around page 75. And uh, I invite you to pick up there as we look today. Um, you know, uh, Paul's overall purpose <clears throat> was to bring unity among the believers, realizing that some of the, as I said, some of the church houses in the city of Rome made up of Christians who were Jewish Christians. Some were made up of Gentile Christians. And so uh, Paul is wanting them to understand that they're all one family, a diverse family, no doubt, just like the church is today. If you think about all the ethnic groups, cultural groups, racial groups making up the body of Christ today, it is quite diverse. And so, but there is unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We call this these passages that we look at in Romans, finally, the, the Romans road. If we follow that road, the message of that road through Romans, we're going to find the message of salvation for those who are lost. And a reminder to you and me as Christians that this is the good news. It's the best news. This is what we have to share. This is what Christ has called us to share to the world around us. And so we will see that God, through the gospel, is redeeming people. He's regenerating people, and he is unifying people, whether they be Jew or Gentile or, or white or black or Hispanic or whether they be educated, uneducated, it, it really doesn't matter. Nothing unites people. Nothing unites the people of God, I guess I should say, like the gospel. You want to rally the people of God together, focus on the gospel. It doesn't matter because, you see, the gospel breaks down all the barriers that typically separate God's people, whether that be social barriers, whether it be uh, uh, barriers of race or culture. It doesn't matter. On the other hand, ironically, nothing can clearly divide humanity like the gospel. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to divide. And you think about the word of God, Hebrews 4.12 tells us it is like a two-edged, sharp, powerful sword that, that cuts down to the marrow or down to the soul and spirit and, and joint and marrow, and it discerns the, the hearts of every person. The gospel divides. It divides those uh, who are of the light and those who are of darkness. The gospel divides, uh, separates the righteous from the unrighteous. The gospel separates the redeemed from the rejected. But when it comes to the body of Christ, nothing brings God's people together like the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news, the blessed good news. And folks, listen. Nothing. Nothing can reconcile a lost and helpless, depraved sinner to holy God, but the message of the gospel. There is only one hope for lost sinners, and it's contained in the message of the gospel. So in the lesson today, I hope that you will see as we walk down Romans Road, We'll see God's righteousness is revealed through the gospel. We'll see that all have sinned and, and, and earned death. We'll see that God provided Jesus as a substitute for sinners. We'll see that God reconciles and declares sinners righteous through Christ. We'll see that God saves all who trust in Jesus. The gospel is the good news. Amen? The gospel is the good news. There's no better news for the world out there to hear than the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God has provided salvation to sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. As I was saying, it was very important to Paul 
that the church be unified. And you know what? It's very important to the Lord today that the church be unified, that there be unity in the body of Christ. There's no room for division amongst the people of God. We're one body under one head, Jesus Christ. You see, unity is a wonderful thing. The gospel can unify families. The gospel can unify communities. It can unify the church. The gospel can unify a nation in bringing God's people together. Abraham Lincoln, back in the 19th century, in fact, it was the year of 1858, Abraham Lincoln feared for this country, the United States of America, before the Civil War. He was running for the U.S. Senate, and Lincoln quoted the Lord Jesus in a reference when he was talking about the national disagreement over slavery. He quoted the Lord there in Matthew's gospel, chapter 12, verse 25, when Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A family divided against itself cannot stand. A church divided against itself cannot stand. The gospel brings together people of all different groups together under the banner of the wonderful good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and unifies that which was once divided, overcoming the barriers that once divided the people. And that's what Paul is seeking to do in bringing this one unifying message to the church at Rome. Now, if you're in your study guide on page 75, the first fill in the blank, I, I definitely want to, don't want to overlook that because I know some of you live and die by that. Now, I'm just kidding. But you do take pleasure in filling in the blanks. The Bible teaches that the gospel is both an event and a story. Let that settle in. The gospel is both an event and a story. These aspects do not exist apart from or in conflict with one another, but together inspire us to a life of devotion and mission. Number one, it's an event because it speaks of a specific point of history where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was here on the earth. He lived a perfect life, and he gave his life on the cross. He died, crucified. He was buried, and three days he was after, after that, he was resurrected from the grave and ushered in redemption. So there is a point in history that we can go back to and point to and say it was a, an event, a divinely appointed event anointed event but it's also a story the gospel is a story it's a long running story it's the longest running story it's a love story of sorts because you see god began to put in place the story of redemption that he had been planning as the scripture says in ephesians 1 4 before the foundation of the earth God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit began to put into place this story that would begin to unfold all through the Old Testament. The thread, the scarlet thread, they call it, of the gospel that runs all the way through into the New Testament. And so it's both a event and it is a story. And because of that event, because of the story of the gospel, you and I are stirred to a life of devotion. It should cause us to devote our lives to the Lord, to serve the Lord, to love the Lord, to worship the Lord, to tell others. And it, it, it stirs us, it motivates us to missions, to go, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. There's that unity. You see, that was in fulfillment of a promise that God had made to Abraham. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. That God had that, that had gospel implications built into it. In your Bible, turn to Romans chapter one. Let's look at verses 16 through 17. As we talk about God's righteousness is revealed through the gospel. God's righteousness is revealed through the gospel. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Are you? Are you? As a believer, are you ashamed to tell people the good news? The greatest news, the good news of the gospel, Paul said, not me, 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. Well, that's got everyone. Jews and Gentiles. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteousness will live, the righteous will live by faith. And in this letter that Paul is writing to the churches at Rome, at Rome, to Jews and Gentiles alike, he's helping them to understand that salvation is a matter of God's righteousness, not our own. We, we have no righteousness on our own. And Paul understood that. Now, it's interesting. Paul began as Saul of Tarsus, and he was a Pharisee. In fact, referred to himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had all the credentials, all the degrees. He had the right pedigree. He, he was well-schooled. He was, he was a highly respected Pharisee. And as a good Pharisee, he was a good Jew. And his righteousness was based on Jewish tradition. It was based on his bloodline descending from Abraham. And he had been, the fact that he'd been circumcised, it was based on the fact that he kept all the food laws. He did everything that a good Jew needed to do to experience what they considered to be righteousness but that all came crashing down one day on a ride to Damascus when suddenly he encountered in a great powerful vision the risen, resurrected, ascended Son of God. And that changed everything. It turned Paul's world upside down because he was introduced to the real reality of the gospel. He realized that everything thing he'd been placing his trust in for righteousness, legalism, doing works of righteousness was absolutely bankrupt and would not bring him into reconciliation with God, but if anything would keep him away. And Paul began to realize that it was only through the grace of God as he encountered the life, the death, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ Paul began to understand that promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, when God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation of you. Now, mind you, at this time, Abraham's getting on up in age and doesn't even have one child. And God says, I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'm going to bless you and I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless, I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you and you and, and through you all the families of the earth. Don't lose track of that. God said to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And by that, they will be brought into reconciliation with God. Paul all of a sudden realized the power of the gospel. How has the gospel transformed your life? Practically, realistically, what difference has it made? You know, I have to stop and think back a few decades back when I truly trusted my, my life, put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But I can stand here today and tell you that it, when I experienced the love and the mercy and the grace of God extended to me as a lost sinner, folks, it made all the difference in my life. I realized convincingly that the penalty of my sins that would have separated me from God and cast my soul into eternal hell forever were suddenly gone because Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I was a changed person, not a perfect person but a person who God had gotten a hold of my heart, got a hold of my soul, got a hold of my mind, my perspective on life changed, my priorities changed, my view of people changed, and my view of the future changed because of what God did through me in giving me the wonderful privilege to experience the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we move further, let's look at chapter 3 of Romans and these two very familiar passages. If you walk down Romans Road and, and, and somebody's sharing the gospel with you, or maybe you've had the privilege to share the gospel with someone using the book of Romans, you recognize this part because it makes it very clear. Listen, somebody once said, you can't get anybody saved until you get them lost. 
And there are a whole lot of people out there who think they're right with God and have no idea, no clue of the fact that they're just as lost as they can be. They're hell bound because they have different notions about how they can go to heaven. And it's very important that we show them that there's only one way. There's only one way. His name is Jesus Christ. Not just for some of the people, ladies and gentlemen, but the fact is the gospel is for every person. Why? Because the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3:23. For all, folks, when it says all, it means all. There's never been a person to set foot on the face of the earth who doesn't fit that category, save for the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. All have sinned. Everybody is in need of the truth of the gospel. And then Paul goes on to lay down the bad news. There in chapter 6, verse 23, he talks about not only is everybody sinned and falls short of the glory of God, so everybody's in need of salvation. He says, but the wages of sin is death. And when Paul is talking about death, he's not talking about when you breathe your last. He's not talking about when your heart beats the last time. He's not talking about your physical death. If that were the case, it wouldn't be too bad. At least you just go out of existence, but that's not what the Bible says. Paul's talking about that eternal spiritual death where you're separated from God. When you die and you don't have Christ in you as your, your Lord and Savior and you've not been saved, let me tell you something, dear friend. There's one other, only one other destination for your eternal soul. And you will consciously, eternally exist in a place of fire and torment and agony and gnashing of teeth and judgment forever and ever and ever. No semblance of hope. That ought to stir the hearts of every person breathing air on the face of the earth today. And when Paul says, for all have sinned, he meant all have sinned. He reiterated that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. He says, reminding the Christians at Colossae, he says, you, and, and you were once alienated. Get a hold of the language Paul is using. And you. And he's talking to you and he's talking to me. At one time, you were alienated and separated from God. Enemies of God. Yet Christ reconciled us to God in the body of his flesh through death that he might present us holy and blameless in his sight. Listen, don't sit back self-righteously and think to yourself, well, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. And I hear that quite often when I ask people, do you know you're going to heaven? When you die, what's going to happen? Well, you know, I, I, I'm a good person. I, I've not done any, I've not killed anybody. I've not, you know, stolen. I, you know, they'll name the big crimes and say, you know, and I've given some charities. You know, I sent some money to this charity. I, you know, I've gone to church once or twice. I think it was Christmas, maybe Easter, you know. Yeah, yeah. My grandmother, oh, just a saint of a woman. Like you can inherit. Folks, let me tell you something. There's a lot of people walking around thinking they're going to heaven when Jesus makes it abundantly clear. That the broad way, the easy way, there are many on that way, Jesus says. Oh, yeah, there's a whole crowd on that way. Oh, they love it. They're riding the way of ease and pleasure and selfishness and, 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 and contentment. But the problem with that easy, broad way, Jesus says, it leads to destruction. The freeway, the expressway to hell is a whole lot wider. And a whole lot busier than that narrow path. And that's what Jesus says. But the way to life is narrow. And few go that way. So we need to make sure that we share with them the truth of what the gospel says. Every person at some point needs to be saved. They need to be under conviction of their sin against God. And Paul reminds us, not only are we guilty, 
You're already convicted. You know that, don't you? You were. You were. I got to be careful. I don't want to make you think you lost your salvation because we we know the Bible teaches us once you're saved, you're, you're always saved. Praise God. But the, for that family member, that friend, that co-worker, that neighbor of yours that thinks that somehow they're good enough to get into heaven, they need to understand in the eyes of holy and righteous God, they are already convicted. And not only are they already convicted, if they read the word of God and hold it up against their heart, and if Jesus Christ is not the Lord of their life, let me tell you something, it says guilty. Now I know that Derek Chauvin has been convicted by a jury of his peers. But now I understand he's got to wait eight weeks. Eight torturous weeks to find out what his sentence is. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not the case with the word of God. God has also, also not only announced and pronounced that, that those without Christ are guilty, but he's already given the sentence, and we just read it. Those who are guilty without Christ who are lost have been condemned to an eternity of judgment separated from God in absolute anguish and agony. And they'll have a lot of company. Let's move on because I want us to grasp the fullness of this wonderful gospel message that we have given to us in the Roman road. As you look in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, I want you to see God provided Jesus as a substitute for sinners. And we'll also go back to chapter 6, verse 23. But first of all, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Remember I said that the gospel message, the story of the gospel is a love story? It is. It's about God's love for you. It's about God's love for me. It's about God's love for the world. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He says, but God proves his love. His own love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know if you get the magnitude of what he's saying there. But God didn't wait for us to get our act together. God didn't wait for us to, to clean up our act and, and begin to act righteous and all of that. And then he decided he's going to love us. Listen, God looked at me in, in the most depraved and wretched part of my life. When I was the most undeserving of anybody's love, much less the love of a holy and righteous God. And yet he says it was at that time that God demonstrated his love towards me. You know, Paul gave a bleak diagnosis for humanity as sinners. The fact that we deserve hell is what he said. Jews and Gentiles alike. Anybody. Doesn't matter what your race is or what, what your economic standing or your educational accomplishments are, are. The fact is, if you are without Christ, you have a very bleak diagnosis and a bleaker prognosis. Without Christ. I had a good friend. I, I did his funeral service or helped to officiate his funeral service Friday. You've heard me talk about Mr. Urquhart, a godly man. Wonderful saint, taught me in Sunday school. I had the privilege of standing up and, and officiating part of his service. And just, uh, but you know, two months ago, he went to Duke Hospital and the doctors you know, gave him thorough exams and scans and everything. And they came back in and told him and his family says, we're sorry. We've done all we can do. When the doctors walk in and they, as a team, tell you that at a major medical research hospital, you know that prognosis is not good. And so he got to go home, be with his loved ones. I went and visited with him a couple of times. We had a wonderful time together, prayed together. But he knew it was just a matter of time. Just a matter of time. For those people that were without Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, let me tell you something. 
if it were not for the love of God, their bleak diagnosis would have no hopeful prognosis. But we know how that changes in Jesus. You see, there can be no forgiveness and no atonement for sin without the shed in the blood. So Jesus gave his measureless love and demonstrated it through shedding his blood. Folks, listen, I know, I know in the sophisticated culture in which we live, and even some of the churches today don't like to sing hymns that mention the blood because it's somewhat repulsive to people. Well, I'm sorry, I don't want to apologize for the, the, the number of times that the blood is mentioned in the word of God, nor will I apologize for those godly hymns, biblical hymns that are written about the blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, he's, the writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And that's reiterated all the way back in the Old Testament. If you go back into Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, you'll see where God made it abundantly clear to the nation of Israel. Without the shedding of the blood of the sacrifices, there would be no pardon for your sins. Why do we need to offer sacrifices to you, Jehovah God? Because it holds off my wrath. And Jesus, as we just celebrated in the observance of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, he just disarmed sin. He defeated death. He de dethroned the evil one in one swoop. When he looked up towards heaven from that cross with his blood oozing from his body and said, it is finished. And because of that, you and I have gained a freedom, a freedom from sin, a freedom from the shackles of the devil, freedom from being tormented and, and, and controlled by our flesh nature, free from, from the grips of a, a world that is anti-Christ and anti-God. We're free from the bondage. And I'm afraid there's so many of God's people calling themselves Christians who claim to have heard and received the gospel, and yet they still live as if they're in slavery to sin. Spoke about Abraham Lincoln. Stories told that one time when he was president, he went down to slave market just to see what it was like. And there on the block was a beautiful African-American girl who was about to be sold, a young woman, as a slave. He knew in his mind that as a matter of time, it was just a matter of time, she would be bought up by one of these wealthy slave owners and she would be a, a, a sexual toy to some white master. Abused and, and, and tortured. So he entered into the bidding for this young African-American woman. Well, after a while, the bidding kept going and Everybody began to drop out. It was down to Abraham Lincoln and another man. I don't know how that would feel, bidding against the president, but anyway. Mr. Lincoln won the opportunity to purchase this young woman. He paid the price. He was given the bill of sale. He walked over to this young lady, looked her in the eyes, and gave her the bill of sale. He says, you're free. She was awestruck. She, she, she didn't know what to think. She didn't even know what to say. She says, well, what? He says, yes, you're free. What, what, what do you mean? I mean, this is foreign to a slave's ears. He says, yes, you're free. You can do anything you want to do. She thought about that. Incredulous. She just couldn't grasp it. And he says, yes, and you can, you can go anywhere you want to go. Finally, after she thought about it, tears streaming down her face, she looked up with a big smile at Abraham Lincoln, and she says, I want to go with you. Anybody that would demonstrate that kind of love and that kind of grace and that kind of mercy won her heart and her devotion. 
We just read together. But God has proven his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You understand, Jesus didn't die for good people. Jesus didn't die and suffer on that cross for righteous people. There were none. There were none. He died for wicked sinners, unworthy, depraved sinners, you and me. It was then that he died. Folks, that's real love. And does the love of God compel you without question? To say to God, say to the righteous and holy God that demonstrated such divine love, do you look up to, to Almighty God and say, listen, I want to go where you're going. Because anybody that would do this for me, I want to be with them. Who can you give your life to? Who can you be devoted to? Who can you follow better than the one who laid the life of his only begotten son on a rugged cross to shed his blood, his sinless blood for you and me? And yet some people today somehow don't want to even be convenienced to show up at church to worship God because they got other important things to do. How does God or how does the love of God Compare with the kinds of love that we find in the world today. <laughs> There's a lot of love out there. I'll tell you that, folks. But most of it is rotten. God's love does not show favoritism. Amen? God's not in, He's not impressed with how much money you got, how good you look. How many degrees you have, how big a house you have, or how fancy a wardrobe you've got, or how many social friends you have, or, or how many times you've been in who's who, or how, whatever. Listen, that doesn't impress God. It doesn't matter how much power you have. God's love is unconditional, shows no favoritism. His love is extended to enemies. You said, no. Guess what? Did you hear what I read to you from Colossians chapter 1? You were his enemy. I was his enemy. We were alienated from him. And yet he's loved us. Listen, Jesus taught in that wonderful beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 44. Jesus says, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor but hate your enemy. That's what the Jews were taught. But he says, but I say, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. You see, God could say that because he initiated it. He showed us. He demonstrated it. But you know, the wonderful thing is, God doesn't just save us to keep us from dying eternally. God saves us so that we can live. So that we can really live. The majority of the people walking on the face of the earth today aren't living. They're spiritually dead. They're existing. But then when they die, like Tim was talking about in the prayers, the supplications, the 50-some sailors in that submarine, probably all Muslim, if not the majority. And, and, and yet they, they were alive, but they died twice. Physically, and because they were in spiritual darkness, they died eternally. There are people all around you who are dying second death. There are a lot of people you, you come into contact with. They look alive. They talk. They walk. They do things and everything. But guess what? They're dead. Spiritually, they're dead. In God's eyes, they're dead. So was you. So were you. So was I. We were spiritually dead until the Spirit of God quickened us. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we were made to live. Not just physically, but our spirits came alive. So that even when we die physically, we live forever. Hallelujah. That's the blessed hope of the gospel. That's why I like that verse in Galatians 2.20 where Paul says, I am crucified with Christ and nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the flesh, 
I live by the faith of the Son of God. When you choose to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, let me tell you something. Christ moves in by His Holy Spirit. He takes your dead spirit, awakens it. He suddenly begins to live through you. What a wonderful gift. We need to move along. Because I want us to look at Romans chapter 5, verse 9 through 11. God reconciles and declares sinners righteous through Jesus. He declares sinners righteous through Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, not in ourselves, mind you, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. And, and as we listen to what Paul is saying, it's through the righteousness that God gives us that we can truly begin to live our lives and live our lives for God. Live our lives for that which will count. Live our lives for that which will matter. Because we've experienced God's grace. And this brings unity. This brings unity. Because we have been born again and given life in Christ, you and I have the capacity to, to, to love like nobody else can love. That's how we can love in our enemies, because Christ is loving them through us. That's how we can have compassion for the down and out when everybody else is walking past them and ignoring them. It's because Christ is letting us see them as he sees them. And that's how in the body of Christ, even as diverse as the church is, different backgrounds and different experiences and different ages and, and what have you, we can still function as one unified body. There's no, no room for division and discrimination in the body of Christ, whether that be the local church or the expanded body of Christ. We're all one. I like how Paul put it in Romans 12, 10. He said, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. Is that the way you love fellow Christians? It grieves my heart when I see in the body of Christ today, people getting so torn up over petty things, over secondary things. That would cause them to say, well, well, if that's the way you feel, I, I don't know if I can fellowship with you anymore. I thought for sure you liked the carpet is blue. You know? And I didn't forget what you said about me 10 years ago. Yeah? Oh, listen, the small things, the small things that people get torn up over. Oh, well, you, you, don't, uh, you don't have a degree like I do, or you don't work a, a professional job like I do, or your, your house is not as big as my house was, therefore I can't fellowship with you, understand, you're not of my class. Listen, God looks upon that and he abhors that kind of division. Paul says, be kindly affectionate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And in fact, give preference to one another. Put the needs of others even ahead of your own needs in the body of Christ. God reconciles. He doesn't divide. God reconciles. And if there's a difference that you have that has caused a rift between you and a brother or sister and the, and the Lord, dear friend, the scripture is all over this thing about you go to that person. If they sin against them, you lovingly confront them with that and you seek reconciliation with them. But don't be divided. As we close out, we're going to look at Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. God saves all who trust in him. I say, amen. The gospel is not meted out to ethnic groups, not just to the Jews, but to the Jews and the Gentiles, Paul said. Not just to different socioeconomic groups, not just to different nationalities or cultures. The gospel is to everyone. God saves all who trust Jesus. Verse 9. 
If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Folks, that's what you need to know when you're talking to lost sinners. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Listen, you've got to believe in your heart. You've got to believe and know what you believe about Jesus Christ based on the teachings of the Scriptures, that He indeed is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, gave His sinless, perfect life on the cross to pay the price for your sins, died and was buried, and then three days after was resurrected from the grave. There is no other Jesus. There is no other gospel. There is no other, other salvation. In verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Amen. Oh, we'll be, we'll get shamed by the world's crowd. Well, you're one of them Christians. You're one of those narrow-minded bigots, old-fashioned, bible Come on, this is the 21st century. You really believe? Or, you, you, oh, get out of here. Oh, listen. They'll, they'll try their best to put you to shame, but let me tell you something. Ultimately, you will never be put to shame. Not in Christ. Since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. You see the all? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, hallelujah, will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Man, I have used that so many times in talking to people about Jesus or preaching that because it's, there are some people thinking they're just, they're not worthy. There's no way that a holy, loving God could ever forgive me of my sins. There's no way that God would ever want to save somebody like me. You may say, well, what, did, what does Paul mean there, preacher, when he talks about everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? Not Muslims, surely. Yes. Praise God, we've got some powerful, wonderful, devoted Muslim brothers and sisters, people who came out of Islam, who love the Lord Jesus Christ and are risking their lives by staying amongst their, their families and their neighborhoods and the communities so that they might be able to share the gospel because they realize they're the only hope. Surely not Muslims, yes. Surely not murderers, yes. The man hanging next to Jesus on the cross likely was a murderer. They'll just crucify you for being a chicken thief. And he said, Lord, when you go to your kingdom, we're going to your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus told him. He just said, well, you know, Shame you didn't go to one of my evangelistic crusades over there on the mountain 10 years ago. No, Jesus says, this day you will be with me in paradise. There's some wonderful glowing stories of men, maybe women, but I've read some stories of men, I've shared some with you, uh, who are on death row. Some ready to be electrocuted and haven't heard the truth of the gospel and the love of God and the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, even in that dire state, chose to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and were wonderfully and gloriously saved. Don't rule anybody out. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. And when you confess, you confess that Jesus is Lord, you submit to his kingship. You choose to live according to the teachings of his scriptures and you live obediently. Listen, when Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Listen, he wasn't inviting you to go with him on a cruise. He wasn't inviting you to go with him on a joyride and, and have wonderful experiences. And Oh, no, 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 no. When he says, if any man come out to me, let him deny himself. First of all, get rid of self. Deal with that selfish part of you, that self-centered part of you, and make me the focus of your life. And then he says, take up your cross. Folks, a cross is not an instrument of pleasure and comfort, suffering and sacrifice. And then he says, you follow me. I'm not following you. Jesus didn't say, you, you choose me, and then I'll follow you wherever you choose to go. The priorities of your life have become my priorities, and places you want to go, I'll go with you. No, no, no. He says, you follow me. And when I lead you to that 
cantankerous, mean old neighbor that nobody likes. Listen, when I take you to his front step, you better be right behind me because you're going to tell him about me. Follow me. Because that means that you're making Jesus not only your Savior, but you're making him the Lord of your life. It grieves my heart to hear the people talk about Jesus being their Savior, but there's very little evidence of the fact that he is the Lord of their life. He's not number one. He's not the priority of their life. They don't take their marching orders from him. They try to tell Jesus what to do. And I got news for you, like Dr. Adrian Rogers used to say, you can't have Jesus as your Savior if he's not the Lord of your life too. And that's why I'm very, very cautious about young children coming to, quote, faith. I'm afraid a lot of the boys and girls have been pushed into the baptistry pool because mom and daddy want them to do it. Makes them look good. I, I haven't met very many elementary age children, maybe even preteens, that can honestly, coherently say they understand that by choosing Jesus Christ, they realize they're taking up a cross of sacrifice. They, they understand they're going to deny themselves for the rest of their life. And they understand they're going to follow him wherever he goes. Now, I'm not challenging anyone's salvation. But I caution and urge parents and grandparents, because I is one, be ever so careful and prayerful how you talk to children about the decision to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Because it's a whole lot more than feeling a tingle in your heart and praying a little prayer and signing your name on a card. And Jesus says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It makes all the difference in a person's life. It makes all the difference in a person's family. When a person is born again, truly following Christ, it makes the difference in a community. You get enough born again people who Jesus is the Lord of their lives and they're committed to following Christ and obeying the teachings of his word. Listen, it will change and impact the community. Listen, the only hope for our nation is that somehow God will bring a spiritual awakening that will quickly convict the hearts of lost sinners and turn them to God because Jesus Christ is the only hope. What will God's new community with all the believers, what will a church look like where people are born again, transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit? Jesus is the Lord of their life. And they're giving preference and honor to one another, not their own selfish desires. I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like the kingdom of God. Jesus taught us to pray to the Father. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Nothing can be more heavenly on the earth than to walk into the midst of a, a, a gathering of believers whose hearts are filled with the Spirit of God, who are dedicated to the Word of God, who are absolutely committed to Jesus Christ as the Lord of their lives. You're talking about love. You're talking about grace. You're talking about forgiveness. You're talking about people who are excited to be together to worship God. It's like being in heaven here on earth. I encourage you. Take this lesson. What we've done together here today, dear friends, is just walk through the gospel. If you got your study guide, don't throw that thing away. You earmark this lesson. And when you got a family member that you're concerned about their, their salvation, you pull out the lesson today. If you're here today as a guest, you want one of those study guides, 
We'll put one in your hand before you leave and show you the lesson. But you know the scriptures, they're right there. You've just heard the full gospel message. You know what to tell people now. When they say, you know, I've been thinking about heaven. And I wonder, what does it really take to get to heaven, to know that you're going to go to heaven? I've been thinking about God. And how can I know that when I die, I'm going to live forever and be able to be in the presence of the Lord? You've just heard it. And if you need me to revere it, I'll be happy to go over it with it and to revere it with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you, we worship you, and we thank you. You are holy, holy, holy. You are righteous. You are high and lifted up, exalted above the heavens. And yet you love us. So much so that you would send your only begotten son into this wicked, sinful world to die on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And Lord, you've just shown us clearly in your word how it all plays out. How can we ever thank you, Lord? Those of us who are truly saved, followers of Jesus Christ, how, how can we thank you, Lord, for such a wonderful gift and a glorious opportunity to have the privilege to live, to truly live with the priorities of heaven on our mind, not the things of the world. How can we ever thank you? Well, Lord, I know your word teaches us that the thing that pleases you is that we are obedient. That's how we show you our love is that we obey your word. Help us to be obedient to the teachings of your word. Help us to be faithful to the leadership of your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to be quick to confess any sin, to repent of it, to turn from it. And always seek your cleansing and purifying every day. And Lord, help us to be sensitive to those around us who do not show evidence of having the security of salvation that we have. And rather than puffing us up and letting us look down our nose at them, Lord, give us compassion, the compassion that you have, that we'll go to them and we'll tell them the truth of the gospel and see people saved and come to Christ so that they can in turn tell others who can be saved and come to Christ, who then can also tell others who can come to Christ and be saved. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. If there's anyone in hearing of my voice today, having walked through these critical passages, that does not have the assurance of eternal life, salvation, oh God, I pray you will stir them, convict them, out of love and draw them to me or to some other Christian who they can comfortably talk about their relationship with you. Lord, I pray, I pray that salvation will come to many. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother Mark, I'll ask if you would to come and offer.